If you haven't done so, let me encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. We're going to begin in the Old Testament this morning, but look at a number of passages, both in the Old and the New. We begin in Leviticus 24. As you turn there, I'll tell you that this evening, Lord willing, we're going to continue to look at one more parable before, in a couple of weeks, we're going to return to 2 Samuel. And the parable this evening has to do with the fact that just as God warned us, the visible church always contains many who are unconverted as well as converted. What does that mean for us? Why does the Lord spend time in the word warning his people of that fact? But this morning, we come to the final for this time in a series looking at different biblical metaphors for God's people. We've been picturing the people of God and seeing how these different pictures tell us something about who we are in relation to Christ, who we are in relation to one another, and then who we are in relation to the world. This morning we come to an image that is arguably less familiar than any of those that we've looked at so far, and yet you find it in both the Old and the New Testament. And it has its background here in Leviticus 24 as God through Moses is telling the people of Israel, how to conduct their old covenant worship. So these are instructions for what was called the tabernacle, which was kind of a portable worship place and the center of worship for God's people at that time. Here together with me, the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil, from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread, and arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever, and it shall be For Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. Let's ask the Lord's blessing as we consider his word together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us your word, and we acknowledge that there are portions which are very, very clear, and then other parts which are harder to understand. We think of Philip speaking with the Ethiopian eunuch, and he asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I possibly, unless someone explains it to me? We ask that ultimately the Holy Spirit would be at work to explain, to give understanding, to guard from error, and to incline our hearts to walk in your way. We ask these things for Christ's glory, for our benefit and the good of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to see this morning that the Holy Spirit calls you through the word to picture the people of God as bread. 
And not just any bread, but as holy bread set on the table of the Lord. Now that might sound unfamiliar to you. That might sound strange. You don't know the significance. What does this mean for us practically? And Lord willing, you're going to see that it does have implications for the Christian's view of the church and for your view of yourself. This says something for us in terms of our comfort, our assurance in Jesus Christ. And it says something about what we are to be. A people of unity, a people of holiness. And so we'll examine these ideas together, how the people of God are pictured as holy bread on God's table, under three main divisions. First, of course, we're going to need to look at Leviticus 24, see this in its Old Covenant context, in the context of the bread of the tabernacle. But you may already be familiar with the fact that whatsoever was in that tabernacle was patterned upon heavenly realities. And so we'll need to go from the Old Covenant and then see what is this saying in light of the New Testament. And then from that, finally, to conclude by looking at some of the implications for the people of God. Now, before going into that first idea, the bread of the tabernacle itself, let me just Bring your mind back to a certain consideration. I've already said it, and it needs to be repeated, especially for those who are younger or who are coming from outside. Old covenant worship, the way that it was conducted with all of its intricacies, the standing up of all of these poles as they moved the tabernacle around, and then claws were hung between them, and a whole structure was built up, all these different kinds of coverings and implements, golden objects and objects of acacia wood, You could get lost in all the details, but what is most essential for you to know is that it wasn't the invention of some people on earth. Other religions have all kinds of intricate details, but different from all of them, the Bible asserts that God himself gave the pattern. What's the purpose of that pattern? Hebrews chapter 8 tells us that it was a picture of heavenly realities. And thankfully, some of those realities are very plainly spelled out for us in the Bible, in the New Testament in particular. So I imagine many, if not all of us, are familiar, for instance, with how the high priest was a figure of Christ. And how on the Day of Atonement, described in Leviticus 16, blood was taken from a pure offering, an unblemished lamb, and it was brought all the way into the Holy of Holies, And that blood wasn't put anywhere. It was put on top of the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. What was in that Ark? What was in that box? A copy of the Ten Commandments. A copy of God's moral will summarized. Blood was put over and the top of that Ark was called the Mercy Seat. All of this then is a figure of how ultimately God's people needed a mediator, an intercessor, who could somehow bring peace between them and God for having broken his law. And so it's a picture of Christ's own blood fulfilling that work. Many of us are familiar with that, that the Old Testament way of worship symbolized things. Less of us, I imagine, are familiar with what is the significance of the bread of the tabernacle. It surely must be more than just a way to feed the priests. And yet, many of us are not familiar. And so... What we'll do in the first place is simply look at this ritual to try to understand how is it conducted, what was its significance, and then how does it set us up 
to appreciate what we have in Jesus Christ. And this is our first main division, to look at the bread of the tabernacle in Leviticus 24. Look at the text with me. I'm going to draw your attention to several details and try to clarify the basic ritual here. Every week, another set of these loaves of bread was brought in. Twelve loaves. And you have to picture them not as big round loaves that maybe you would be familiar with, but this is flat bread. It was prepared in such a way as prepared quickly so that no leaven forms. So these are almost like big, thick pancakes, depending how the measurement, and there's debate among commentaries, how, what's an ephah? But some estimates go as high as eight pounds per loaf. It's a lot of bread. And it's big and it's flat, and it's set in two piles, six in each pile. So you have that image in mind there. Now, where is it set? It's set upon a table. From ancient times, and for good reason, right up to the present, a table with bread on it is a very obvious symbol. It's a symbol of communion and of fellowship. People typically eat with those they love, and love those with whom they eat. They tend to grow together around the table. And here this bread is brought and set upon a table, and not just any table, but a table that is covered in gold, in a room that is draped with gold-enlaced tapestries, and all of this golden implementation around it. And it's conspicuously said, according to verses 1 through 4, and you can find many other places in Leviticus that describe exactly how it's placed. You have to picture this. You've got the bread sitting on the table. It's big stacks. And there's the menorah, the lampstand. Verses 1 through 4 describe how the high priest goes in, and he has a duty to constantly arrange it so that the light never goes out. He's pouring oil into the lamp on a regular basis. It can never go out. The light is always shining, glinting off of all of that gold, and there's the bread sitting there. That's the basic ritual. Once a week, the bread is taken out and replaced because obviously it will go bad. It will be corrupt, and nothing with corruption, symbolically speaking, is allowed to be in God's presence. What does this signify? What does it mean? In the immediate context, of course, people have formed different ideas. Like any other implement in the temple, there are different perspectives. For instance, one view that is out there, it's certainly not a majority view, is that maybe this represents simply God's provision for his people, and you can see how that's a desirable image. Twelve tribes of Israel, twelve gigantic loaves of bread, and this is about God providing for his people. There may be an aspect of that as another layer, but I would submit to you that's not the primary picture. The majority of commentators skew in a different direction on the basis of the text here and the overall imagery in the word, and I would agree with them. Look at the text with me in verse 8. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it, that is the bread, for the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel. Not from God to the people of Israel, from the people of Israel. And then verse 7, it is a food offering to the Lord. The top layer of meaning here is not directly about the Lord providing for Israel the things that they needed for their daily life. The top level is Israel giving something back to God and something that the priest has a right to and will partake of. 
I submit to you that what is pictured here is a representation of the people of God themselves. Twelve tribes of Israel, twelve loaves of bread, and it's a natural image to make a connection from. Elsewhere, God's people are pictured as wheat in the field. Here they are in their finished form. And so what is this talking about? This is essentially a picture of the goal of redemption. The goal of redemption is for a portion of humanity, a chosen people, to be brought into the presence of God, to bask in his light continually. And the fact that it's placed on the table, of course God has no need to be nourished. God doesn't have appetite in the way that we do where he needs it to live. But he uses this as an analogy to show he desires to commune with us. He desires fellowship with his people. And so you have this picture of the Lord drawing his people in. It's very beautiful. It says something about the purpose of God's people in relation to the Lord. This is the good design. And so I put it before you first as a question. Would you recognize that as something desirable to you? whether you were Israel back then or whether you're just thinking of yourself today, do you desire, think of this as a figure, do you desire to be bred for God? Something delightful, something pure. Think of, this is, a, I don't even have to use a big developed analogy. When was the last time you had a hot piece of bread that was fresh? And right now, it shoots the, the preacher in the foot because now you're thinking about food and distracted. But It's true. God created bread. God created this so that we might understand better the desire that God has to commune with his people, to become one with them. And just as the aroma is wonderful to us, even so the Lord delights in a pure people. The bread itself, it had to be made from the purest ingredients. It was just, in this case, just the wheat and the water. And God desires a pure people. He delights in this. But there's a problem. There's a problem. And part of what the old covenant was doing was teaching God's people. Teaching God's people lessons that we can learn from so that we might be ready to receive Christ eagerly. Every week, the bread was taken out. And why was it taken out? Because it goes bad. It has to be consumed before it goes bad. It has to be replaced. If you just leave it in there indefinitely, it's going to rot. And as a picture of God who is true life, there's no place for anything with the mark of death in the holy place. This is why the priests couldn't have any kind of blemish or disease upon them. This is why the animals had to have no markings on them of death. To underscore God is life and only that which is of life Belongs in his presence. The problem is God's people themselves, just like that bread that is inherently corrupt, it goes bad, we are already corrupted. And the principle is already at work, even before you're brought in. It raises a question. How can the people of God, how can you remain in the presence of God forever? How can you remain basking in the light of his glory forever? And this is where we have to then turn and consider the picture of the bread under the developments that we see in the New Testament. Many questions are raised in the Old Testament that don't find their answer until Christ's coming. So let's look at this as our second main division. 
how this bread of the tabernacle develops in light of who Jesus Christ is. To do that, first, notice a detail in Leviticus 24. How does the bread arrive? It's an obvious detail. There's no trick here. How does the bread arrive in the holy place? Aaron must bring it. If you don't know who Aaron is, he's the high priest. So you have a priesthood, but then you have a select group among the priesthood, the sons of Aaron. And then among them, there's always one high priest. Only the high priest can bring the bread in. And this was to be a figure for God's people to understand that we need mediation. Someone chosen by God, acceptable in his sight, who can go between us and God and who can bring us into his presence. We cannot do that. Hebrews chapter 8 says this very plainly. I don't ask you to turn there. It's very brief. But it says, the point in all that we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is now seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. In other words, he's saying Jesus Christ is that high priest. What the earthly was just a type of, just a picture of, Christ is the reality. God came down, he took our flesh in order to be the mediator between God and man. The ideal mediator between God and man is the God-man, one who is truly God, truly man. What does he offer? You see, it says in verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. When we think about what Jesus offers, most commonly, and with good reason, we default to thinking about offering his blood as atonement for our sin, for our guilt. That he suffered the penalty that human beings rightly deserve for our sins against conscience, against this gift God has given to us of knowing his will for our sins against God's order in the universe. Look around the world, the sorrow that we see every day, that maybe this week you've doom-scrolled the internet and reminded yourself we live in a broken place. Did God put that into that structure? No. He's sovereign over all things, and yet we would have to say, no, human beings are responsible for the evil that we see around us. Their actions have real consequences, mine and yours, And we have offended the Lord. And so rightly we think of Christ offering his infinitely valuable blood. That makes sense. But that's not all that they offered. It says right there, they offer gifts and sacrifices and also the priest brought in bread. Think again, bread representing a portion of humanity chosen by God, acceptable and pleasing in his sight. What bread did Jesus offer into the heavenly place? Turn with me and look at John chapter 6. Where did he ever find bread that was pure and consecrated to give? John chapter 6, verses 32 and following are often called the bread of life discourse. Very famous passage in John's gospel. And it was very confusing for many of the people Who heard him? Many of them, it says, turned away offended. Because he starts saying something about, you have to eat of my flesh. And many of these Jews said, what on earth is he talking about? We can't eat swine, much less can we eat people. What a Jesus, he's crazy. Let's just walk away. 
But much of what Jesus said was intentionally veiled so that it required attention. Verse 33 of John 6, Jesus speaking says, The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In some sense, he says, I am the bread, and the way by which you partake of me is faith, is receiving of me. And then look at verse 50. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. When he says flesh here, he's drawing attention to his human nature. So not simply this stuff, but I would include among that also his true human soul. That body and soul he was giving himself for us. In other words, for God to have a portion of humanity that was truly acceptable in his presence, he had to first come down and take our nature. There was no one that he could find, and it wasn't as if God's people could muster it up in themselves. You will never, in yourself, be pure enough to be received at that table. Not apart from first being received in Christ by faith, and then glorified and brought to the table. But here, Christ presents himself in our place. And one of the beautiful aspects here, then, is that everyone who believes upon Christ is united with him, and we are now represented in him upon that table. And that means that the things that God would say about that bread, he says about those who are in Jesus Christ. The the delight imaged there. Again, think how you feel when there's hot bread on the table. And the Lord looks over his people and he says, I delight. But he delights through Christ upon you. There's also a wonderful development. Hebrews 8 says that Christ is the guarantor of a new and better covenant. The new covenant is not new in every sense. It proclaims the same essential gospel as there is at every point. But aspects of the covenant are distinct in different times, including some of the symbolism that's used at different times. And I put it to you as a question, based on everything we've seen so far. Recall, who's allowed to eat of that holy bread? And in that way, to have a sense of communing with God himself. You have to picture God's on the other side of that table. He's in the Holy of Holies. And the priest is chosen and holy. And the priest eats of the bread. And the priest is enjoying a meal with God. Who gets to eat of the bread? Only the high priest. But in the new covenant, something dramatic takes place. Christ is the bread. He's also the high priest. You're going to find that. If you hang out in Christian circles at all, Christ is a lot of the things. He's many of the symbols. That's not a contradiction. It's that he is so full that we need these various angles to understand all that he's done. In the old covenant, only the high priest could eat of that bread. In the new covenant, on the night before Jesus is crucified, he takes a piece 
of the Passover bread. And he lifts it up and he says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a picture of him. He is the acceptable bread. And he says, partake, partake. And so in communion, we are given the assurance that we have been consecrated, that we've been invited, that we are accepted at the table of God, not just in the future, right now. And that's so important about communion. It's often the case that those who commune either make it all about the past, they're thinking about how Jesus died back then and they're grateful for it, or they're thinking about the future, the wedding feast to come. Both of these are important. I'm not saying get rid of them, but it's also and especially the present. Imagine somebody going to a wedding and they're thinking about, you know, as the bride and groom are about to kiss and they're thinking back to when they got married and maybe thinking to how some of their kids are going to get married at some point in the future and they're lost in this reverie and they don't even watch the kiss. They missed it. In communion, we are called by faith to delight that we are at the table. In Christ, we are received. And this is of great comfort to us. What do we do with it? Well, I've already stated that aspect. And by way of conclusion, I want to simply lay before you a couple of ways that we profit in thinking of this bread imagery. Bread brought into the presence of God. The first Let this lay a further ground, a further strengthening for your assurance, especially as you approach communion. In a couple of weeks, Lord willing, we'll have communion together. How different in the imagery from Israel taking the bread out all the time to the reality. The the bread that we will touch is not the reality. It's a sign and a seal. We receive through faith that which is signified, which is Christ. Christ himself never goes bad. He doesn't have to get taken out Sunday after Sunday after Sunday for the last 2,000 years. He's still good. Christ is still good, and your righteousness before God was not you throughout that week. It was Christ the whole time. When we come to the Lord in communion, we need to be prepared to receive very, very good news. Second, it underscores the unity of the church. How does it do that? How does it underscore unity? In fact, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and see this. If you know anything about the church in Corinth, you know that it was a church that was sadly divided in many ways, in fleshly ways, This was a church that was fond of saying, part of the church, I am of Apollos. Well, I am of Paul. I am of Jesus. They're divided, and they're losing a sense of the true unity that we have spiritually in Jesus Christ. And it's against this backdrop that Paul is going to address them in a whole variety of ways. But here, he starts to speak about communion. Verses 16 and 17 of 1 Corinthians 10. The bread that we break... Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Under the old covenant, God's people were 12 tribes. 
And it was natural that they would often think tribally. And furthermore, at one point, a long point of their history, they're divided, north and south, and you see two piles there. I'm not sure that's what the two piles are about. Maybe it's as simple as not wanting to fall over. I don't know. But still, there is this important fact. God's people tend to think tribalistically still. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 and 17, he says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Christ is the only loaf. He is the only bread. And if that's what we partake of and become one with, there's no place for fleshly division, for disunity. Let me be clear here. It is, of course, necessary to form, for instance, I talked about at the beginning of the service, federations and organizational systems. We see it in the book of Acts that at times even Paul has to part ways with fellow ministers that he doesn't see eye to eye with. Yet when we do that, the Christian, and I appeal to you, you, brother, sister, the Christian always cherishes the unity that we have in Christ and we never nurse a grudge. We long for unity, even if practical necessity says that we work separately. In Christ, there is one body. And this should be on our mind when we come to communion. It's one of the reasons why, historically, Protestants have, we call it fencing, fenced the table from those who are not living in reconciliation with others. Because the significance of the supper, part of understanding what you're doing is getting that symbolism. There is one Christ. There is therefore one people. Third and finally, this symbol promotes our holiness. And turn with me and look at 1 Corinthians 5. And we'll see this. We've already seen thus far the bread in the tabernacle had to be of the highest grade. It was very pure. and It was taken out before corruption set in. Paul applies the same imagery in 1 Corinthians 5 where he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you that is among the Corinthian church and of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans for a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord." He's talking here about church discipline and a person who is living in high-handed, gross sin, a person who is unwilling to repent. And that's at the core of what all church discipline is related to, unrepentance. And here he says, you must send them out from among you. And the purpose is not judgmental, and even though there's very clearly judgment going on. The purpose is for the welfare of that person as well as the church in order that fleshly things in them would be dealt with, that they would discover it is not good to hold on to their sin. But it's not just about them. And that's one of the dangers in how we talk about 
church discipline, it's not just about that person restoring them. Look what he then says in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. What were they boasting? And they were boasting, we have so much grace that we can tolerate that. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. In principle, in Jesus Christ, having received the Holy Spirit, you are called to holiness. You are holy. You've been set apart. The elect of God are unleavened in core. And yet in practice, we are also called to purify the church. Now, it will never be perfectly pure. We'll see that actually tonight as we look at a parable in Matthew 13. But we are to diligently approximate the holiness of heaven here. Do we see this church as bread on God's altar, fit for God? Of course we're going to fall short, but none of us are okay with it. We desire to put before the Lord the most wholesome loaf we may. Finally, last of all, I want to ask you a very simple question. We've seen throughout this whole sermon Christ presenting himself as bread. I want to ask you, have you eaten of him by faith? And it may be that you can say from your heart, I simply have never had an appetite for that. Lack of an appetite does not mean that you are nourished. There are diseases that cause lack of appetite, where a person becomes more and more malnourished. Christ declares... His word declares, and it cannot fail, he is the bread of life. In him is life. And others have been seeking and seeking. They feel a hunger for something, and I would appeal to you, that hunger comes from the Lord. It didn't come from yourself. The yearning, the desire to have union with God. Isaiah 55 verse 2 says, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Nothing else can satisfy. It's like you... Hope that through your work or through friendships or through some kind of deep searching of yourself, philosophically or spiritually or whatever, that you're ever going to arrive at something of eternal weight and value. You are finite. This world is finite. Ecclesiastes says God has put eternity in the heart of man. And the bread that we need is of infinite value. Remember how Jesus feeds the multitude? And it just, it's the bread that just keeps on giving. The more they break it, the more there is. Christ is limitless in his value. He nourishes and nourishes and nourishes the deepest needs of human beings. And he calls all who desire him to come and to receive. Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Eating by faith is as simple as trusting and receiving him, saying, Lord, you shall be my bread. Let's ask him even now and let's thank him. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which declares to us who Christ is and who we are in him. We ask that you would please use these words, use this time together in your scripture to nourish us for the week to come. Lord, we ask that you would please purify us, that you would do so through a heart of gratitude and not of servile fear.
We pray that in everything you would be honored. And we thank you for that day when we will be set in your holy presence, gleaming like gold. We thank you for the light that shall never fail. We thank you for our high priest who brings us there. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.